You're listening to the sermon series, The Songs of Jesus, at Sojourn East. In this series, we'll see the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. Well, it's so good to be back with you this morning. Today is the first Sunday of of Advent, and in recognition of that, we're actually going to step out of Matthew for the next few weeks, and we're going to do a different series called The Songs of Jesus. And the goal and the aim of this series is really pretty simple. We want to look at some of the most well-known and well-loved Christmas hymns and explore the texts that inspired them. And we really have two reasons for this. One, let's face it, For the next 25 days, we're going to be listening to and singing a lot of Christmas music. And even the people who don't like the music, you have no right, you know, to talk bad about the music because we're now in December. And so everyone's going to have it playing all the time. And the songs are really, really familiar. And so we figured, like, we know the songs, we're going to hear them. It'd be fun to actually press in to the theological richness that's in these songs. And sometimes... That richness gets lost in the midst of the familiarity. But these songs are so deep and they teach us so much, not just about the birth of Christ, but the gospel and God's great plan for the world. And so we're going to be looking at four different songs. Today we're starting with what's my favorite Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This is the oldest carol we have. The song dates back to about the 8th century. Originally the lyrics... uh, were used by monks uh, as an aid to prayer, aid in prayer. And so they weren't originally sung. In the 12th century, this prayer was turned into a song. And then in the 1800s, it was translated to English, and it was put to the music that we know today. But I think it's so fascinating to consider that for 1,200 years, people have been singing this song and saying these words. And I think the reason why, there's something about the song that deeply resonates with people across the ages. And I think the song, what it does is it captures what I would call the tension of Advent so well. You know, the the song's in a minor key, which when paired with the lyrics, give it this dark, kind of moody, almost mournful feel. But when you hit the refrain, rejoice, rejoice, Uh, It's like for a moment, a light pierces the darkness of the song, but it's only for a moment, and then you're back to the verse, and you're back in that mournful feeling. The tension in the song, it captures the tension of Advent. The word Advent means to come. Emmanuel means God with us. That's what the season's about, celebrating that God has come and that he will come again. On Christmas... That's the day we celebrate with joy that Jesus has come. We have joy that God has walked among us. Christmas is amazing, but Advent's actually much bigger than Christmas. For centuries, Christians have set aside the four weeks leading up to Christmas as a time, and Sam talked about this a little bit, as a time for waiting and reflection and repentance and anticipation Because while we cherish the reality that Christ has come, we also acknowledge that there's still a lot of darkness in this world. You know, the song actually puts a name to this darkness, puts a lot of names. It talks about us being in captivity, envy, strife, 
bitterness. It talks about us living on the path of misery or living under Satan's tyranny. If you really press into the lyrics of the song, you'll recognize that it's not a sentimental chestnuts roasting on the open fire kind of song. But Advent's not a sentimental season. Advent's a time where we, we reflect on the darkness in the world and in our lives, but even more than reflecting on it, like we stare it in the face as we wait with eager anticipation the return of our Lord. As we know, when Christ comes again and finishes his work, all darkness will be expelled, all sin shall be no more, every tear will be wiped away, and God will dwell with us, and we will be his people, and he will be our God. And that's our great longing. That's our great hope. And that's what this song is all about. And that's what Advent is all about. Hope, expectation, longing, desire. You know, every verse of the song begins with the word or even just the letter O. It's the O of longing and the O of desire. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to talk about how this season of Advent, this year, how it might speak to and how it might shape and even reshape our desires, our longings, our wants as a people. You know, desire is something that I don't think we talk enough about in the church. Even the concept itself makes some of us uncomfortable. You know, maybe you're raised in a tradition that kind of told you, if you want it, if it feels good, don't do it. And so in your mind, you kind of equate desire with sin. Or maybe you just don't trust your desires because sometimes they are not trustworthy. You know, maybe you're like me. I have this inner voice still to this day. Like when I think about my own longings and wants and desires, this voice that says, it doesn't matter what you want. What matters is what God wants. It's not about you. It's about him. And while there's certainly some truth in those statements, when we let that kind of thing creep in long enough, like it really distorts our understanding of ourselves and how God created us. God created us as desiring beings. And desires, they don't just sit on the periphery of our life. They sit at the very center. They're in the driver's seat. And so if we don't have a right understanding of desire, a biblical understanding of desire, we'll never really have a true understanding of ourselves. And on top of that, we'll end up feeling maybe guilt and shame over things, over longings that God's given us. Even worse, when we don't understand desire, we can end up with a very distorted view of God. I wonder how many of us here, we try our best not to get our hopes up when there's something we really, really want, because we think, if I really, really want it, then there's no way God is going to give it to me, and it's probably an idol. Anyone? Like I, I want to be married and I'm single. I, I want to have children. I want a job that's meaningful. And you really want the things, but you're even afraid to say it because you know if you say it, then, well, God probably will never give it to you. We have this belief. You know, years ago, about 11 years ago, my wife and I, we have five kids now, so it's kind of funny, but for two years, we really struggled with infertility. And... In that time, I was talking with a Christian counselor and a friend, uh, and I said, you know, we're struggling with this and trying to be supportive and hopeful, but also 
like asking what does all this mean and in the course of the conversation one of the things he said and he was a good friend and very nice man but he said like the problem is you're idolizing children you should be focusing on the family or not you should be focusing on the kingdom not so much on having a family and i remember even 11 years ago thinking really like is there no room for us to want things and long for things without them becoming idols but we hear that kind of thing enough times and we learn even subconsciously to push our desires down because we think if i really want it God probably won't give it to me. Well, that's really problematic when we think that God's greatest desire <laughs> is to squash and frustrate our desires. It's a very distorted view of who God is. I imagine a lot of us were starting our Christmas shopping for the parents in the room. Just think about how messed up it would be if you went to your kids and you gave them a piece of paper and a crayon or a pen, depending on their age, and you said, hey, I want you to tell me all of the things that you really, really want for Christmas. You know, they leave, they agonize over this list, they bring it to you two hours or two days later. Here's all the things I really, really want. How messed up would it be for you as a parent to tear the list in half and laugh like a villain saying, you will never get any of these things? That could be a real problem. And yet, how many of us think that that's what God is like? You want it? You're not going to get it. So often we think God is just eager to withhold the things we want and dispense the things we despise. Psalm 37, David says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, this verse has been manipulated for sure. There are some who make this say, like, delight yourself. Sing it up on a Sunday, and then God will give you the Maserati or whatever else you wanted in life. And that's not what David's saying, but David is saying something. And these words have meaning. And he's saying that there is a way that if our hearts are ordered properly and our desires are ordered properly, God will actually delight to give us the very things that we want. Well, the text we're looking at today, Isaiah 9, and really we're going to look at a couple of chapters before as well. I think it's one of the better texts we have in the Bible that speaks to desire. It speaks to how desires kind of go off the rails and get out of whack and how God reorders and reshapes our desires. And even though the, the passage that we just read together is filled with great and precious promises, the overall context in which those promises were given was actually pretty bleak. Isaiah spoke these words about 700 years before Jesus' birth. <laughs> and like a lot of times in Israel's history, it was a dark time in their history. Uh, the tribe of Judah is a tiny nation at this point, and they're wedged between two ancient superpowers, basically that are both kind of breathing down their neck. And uh, Judah's in this very strategic location, and so both of these superpowers want to conquer them and take over them. And so we learn from the text, and just common sense, that the, the people of Judah and the tribe of Judah, they were filled at this moment in time with a lot of fear 
and a lot of desire. And their desires are spelled out for us. One, they desired security, like they didn't want to be overrun by their enemies. They desired significance, and I don't think in a bad way. Like they, they, they wanted to make a name for themselves, and they desired success, flourishing. They wanted to have a great, flourishing nation. Now, they're very anxious about this, and these are the longings of their heart, and they seem really far out there, and God comes to them, and to the king, and he says, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to give you victory. And your enemies, they're actually going to be like reduced to embers within the next 50 years. Just trust me. King Ahaz, at the time, he doesn't explicitly say no to God, but he does kind of like keep him at arm's length because Ahaz was convinced that a quicker route to peace and a quicker way to fulfill his desires would be through making an unholy alliance with Assyria instead of trusting God. In response, God tells Ahaz and the rest of the tribe that as a result of their lack of faith and their lack of trust in him, that God was going to send them into a season of great darkness. He'll hand them over to their enemies. Chapter 8 of Isaiah ends with these words, speaking of when God hands them over. It says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's like Isaiah doesn't want us to miss. God doesn't want us to miss what's going to happen. It's going to be dark. There's going to be a lot of distress and anguish. There's going to be crying out to God. There's going to be hunger and famine. And it was born out of, in some ways, their desires. Really, their, their desires that had been misdirected. Because think about it. The desire for security, significance, success. Are those good desires or bad desires? They're good, right? If you think those are bad desires, it'd be hard for me to be friends with you. You want permanent instability, you want to be insignificant, and you want things to always go bad for you. These are good desires. The problem is they sought to fulfill these desires not through the Lord, but around him. And when we try to do that, darkness often follows. And this is where we come to the real challenge of desire. So often... They get misdirected. They can be good desires that kind of attach themselves to not great things. So maybe you have a desire for significance. You try to meet that need through shopping or through sports. You get depressed when your team loses. Your spouse knows to stay away from you when your team, which they're not your team. You've never played for them. You don't own any stock in them. You've got no vested interest. But when they lose you become angry or depressed. You want to attach yourself to something significant. Or maybe you you try to pursue significance through overworking, living at an unhealthy, unsustainable pace, convinced that just the next rung, that's going to be the rung where everything comes together. We long for community and connection with other people, which is a good God-given desire. But how many... How many people here try to meet that need through one-night stands, be they real or virtual? We long for forgiveness. Think 
Not a single person here wants to be defined by their worst moments. The longing for forgiveness is a good longing. But oftentimes the way we, we try to fulfill that longing, not being defined by our worst moments, is we just blame other people. We blame life. We blame God. We long for peace. Oftentimes the way we pursue that peace is by numbing ourselves with busyness or Netflix binges or bourbon or something harder. In each of these instances, it's not that the longing's wrong, it's just misdirected. The desires have been disordered. And an essential task for growing into maturity as sons and daughters of God is learning to redirect and reorder our desires. And this is where it gets challenging. Where it gets challenging is it's not enough just to say, like, stop desiring these things or, or change your desires. Like, I, I know broccoli is good for me and queso is bad, right? If you put them both in front of me and there are people that I feel like will judge me, I will eat the broccoli before them. I will modify my behavior for their approval. But if they're not there, I will just eat the queso. Like, that's just what I want. I'm still working on choosing the broccoli more than the queso. How much harder is it with some of these deeper, more powerful desires in our life? And I say all that to say, like, this isn't just something, stop desiring this, start desiring that, change. It's not that simple. We can't do it on our own. We need God's help. We need help from beyond ourselves. And that's why Isaiah 9 is so beautiful and so powerful to me. Because while chapter 8 ends with all of this darkness and distress, the story doesn't end there. Isaiah continues to prophesy. So he says, darkness is going to come and it's going to be horrible because of your sin. But then the very next verse, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on then light has shown. And so he's saying, yes, it's going to be bad, but then this light's going to pierce the darkness. And look at the promises that God makes through Isaiah to his people. Pay attention. Verse 3, Isaiah says, In that day you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So God says, on that day when the light pierces the darkness, the nation is going to grow. Multiply the nation. It's going to grow in significance and grow in joy. You're going to be filled with joy. And maybe these examples get lost in us. But in that day, the joy of the harvest, the joy of a military victory, that meant you were going to survive. It meant you are going to be provided for and you are going to have food on the table. So he says, I'm going to multiply your nation, your significance, and your joy. Keep going. Verse 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have, and he's speaking of God, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. So you're going to experience freedom. These people have been breathing down your neck, aren't going to breathe down your neck anymore. Even more than that, though, he promises the end of war itself. Peace, security. Verse 5, it feels like a very dark verse, but it's actually very hopeful when Isaiah says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult 
and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It sounds really dark, but here's what Isaiah is saying. When the light pierces the darkness, your uniforms that are stained in blood, your boots that are stained with blood, you're going to take them all and you can burn them because you won't need them anymore because war will be no more. And then verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now think about what what God is promising here through Isaiah. He's promising all of the things that they really wanted, significance, security, success, joy. He's exceeding their promises. I think this is so fascinating. See, on the one hand, God promises to frustrate their attempts to satisfy their desires apart from him. But then at the same time, God promises that one day, those desires that have been misdirected will find their fulfillment. He says, you try to do it apart from me, you're never going to find it. You try to do it through me, it's going to exceed your greatest expectations and your greatest hopes. Now, these promises, they're not just for the tribe of Judah. Then I'll just speak to the desires of Judah. The promises made throughout, across the ages, and I think they speak to the desire, the desires of every human heart. I mean, what is it that we really want? What is it that we're really longing for? Are we longing for a world of peace and peace, not just absent of conflict, but shalom of well-being and wholeness and flourishing? A world where there is no war, where evil has been eradicated, darkness dispelled. A world where sin and sickness and death are like distant memories. Like, I remember when that things used to be like that. Isn't that what we're longing for? Aren't we all longing, as Isaiah promises, for a righteous king who will not only heal this world in us, but also unite us with the one who created us? Promises here aren't just for Judah. They extend throughout all time. So the question becomes, how will this happen? How will these promises find fulfillment? Better alliances, greater strategy, maybe really like rigorous acts of repentance, just show God you're sorry enough, and then he's like, fine, I'll buy you the thing you want. How will it happen? Well, it's in verse 6, the verse we just read. For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given. Given, gift. It won't come through striving. It will come by his grace. This is what Isaiah is getting at in verse 4 when he says, as in the day of Midian's defeat. A lot of us don't know what that's referring to, but it's in the book of Judges where Gideon's army was going to fight the Midianites And God, before they went to battle, he reduced the size of their army from 32,000 to 300. Because God didn't want them to get cocky. He didn't want them to think that they won the battle in their own power. So he basically just stripped all the power from the army. And they were totally outmatched. But the Midianites were defeated. This is God saying, you will not do this. I will do this for you saying the deepest desires of your heart, I will fulfill them, and I will do it 
by my grace. That's the wonderful news of Advent. That's the wonderful hope we have. It will come by his grace. The challenge is it will come in his own timing. And you have to remember, 700 years before the birth of Christ, (laughs) if they were like us, we read this, we think, all right, darkness and distress, that's going to be a bad week, and then the light will pierce the darkness and everything will be good. But instead, it's 700 years of darkness. Generation after generation after generation came and went, living in darkness without finding ultimate fulfillment of their desires. But the promise was made. And we know that when Christ was born, the down payment on each of these promises was made. But the tension of Advent is learning to wait in hope for God to act in his grace, while at the same time knowing he moves at his own pace and his own timing. So how will this shape us? How should this shape us? Well, imagine being a part of the faithful remnant in Isaiah's day. Like, you know the darkness is coming that's going to engulf you, but you also know that God's made these promises, and when God gives you his word, he never goes back on them. How would that shape your life? Well, one, I don't think it would lead you to bury or suppress your desires. If God's saying, the deepest desires of your heart I will fulfill, I don't think that would lead you to say, well, they don't matter and I don't care about them, and I just try my best not to think about them. No, you would, you'd want to stoke the flame of the desires. You'd want to throw logs of hope on them. You would want, you'd need it to remain properly oriented to God and to the world. But at the same time, you'd know that the ultimate fulfillment of those longings and desires would only come when God, in his own grace and his own timing, ushers in his eternal kingdom. And so you would have these deep longings that are so powerful, but you would also know, but I'm not going to find fulfillment and at least not full fulfillment in anything on this earth because the things of this earth, they're just not capable of filling that void, that longing. C.S. Lewis captures this so well when he writes, most people if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and, want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. Speaking of the best possible ones, there is something we have grasped at in the first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Something has evaded us. Something always seems to evade us. This is why when you actually get the thing that you really think you've wanted, you often feel that letdown. You guys know what I'm talking about? 
think that's actually where Christmas is good for kids. They set their hopes on something, a toy, and it's like, if I could just get this thing, and they get it, and they're over the moon, and then three days later, it's broken and busted. I think that sets them up for a lot of our experiences in life. We're like, if I just, and then you get it, and it's good. But something, as Lewis said, something evades us. And something will always evade us until Christ comes again in his fullness. And the greatest joys in this world, their shadows and their foretaste. Christ is the reality. He's the deepest longing of our hearts. And until we recognize that, we will live such disordered lives, chasing thing after thing, like the famous Tom Brady interview. Why am I married to a supermodel and have three Super Bowl rings, have all the money in the world, and yet feel like there's got to be something more than this? There is. One of the verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, there's seven verses, actually. We don't sing them all because it would be a very long song. But one of the verses begins with the words, O come, desire of nations, come. Comes from Haggai 2.7. What a wonderful name for Jesus. The desire of nations. The desire of every heart. So what does this mean for us? This season of Advent, today, but also over the next four weeks. Like, what do we do in light of this? Well, I'm going to offer you two applications as we wrap this up. Number one. I want to encourage you to trace your desires. And number two, I want to encourage you to train your hope. Trace your desires and train your hope. Trace your desires. What do I mean? Well, I think one of the most revealing questions we can ever ask ourselves is quite simply, what do I want? I'd encourage you, if you're a note-taking kind of person, in your bulletin, the very top or where you got some space, just write that question out. What do I want? I want. Some of you haven't asked that question in a really, really long time. I tell you, if, if you're willing to, to engage with that question honestly, you're going to find like an onion, there are going to be layers. Like I want the new house. I want the promotion. I want this problem to go away. But I think if you actually, is that really what you, you want, or is that going to be a letdown when you get it? What is it that you really, really want? I think as you peel back the layers, you're going to find things like, I want, I want my life to matter. I don't want to feel like a disappointment or a failure. I want to know others and be known as I truly am. I don't want to live afraid of what others think of me. I don't want to live afraid of disappointing people. I want forgiveness. I don't want to be haunted by these things that I've done. I want peace. I want to be able to put my head on the pillow at night and actually fall asleep and not sit there for hours with thoughts racing through my mind. Tell you one of mine, I want the pains and heartaches of this life to not have the final say. Like the losses we experience in life are very real, but I don't want them to be final. 
See, like an onion, you'll peel back and you'll actually find these. It's like an onion, but it's not because there's actually something in the middle. There are these very deep desires that I think God has embedded in us, and only he will satisfy them. There's such a weight to them that only he can satisfy them. And I would tell you, if you put the weight of those desires on any earthly thing or on any human being, you will crush them, just like I would crush my five-year-old if I put the refrigerator on her. She wasn't designed to carry that kind of weight. And I just wonder how many marriages, not just out there, but how many marriages here are really, really struggling because one spouse expects the other spouse to complete them. They're putting all of those desires on them. How many of you are miserable in your jobs because you're looking to find your ultimate fulfillment and significance in them? How many of your kids are going to grow up and need to see a therapist because you're putting so many expectations on them? You're looking for them to do something that only God can do. I love how one author put it. He says, we carry the infinite inside ourselves. We are grand canyons without a bottom. I don't know if anyone else can relate. I can relate to that. Nothing short of union with all that is can ever fill that void. So we trace our desires out to say, this is what I really want. And then we can actually logically think through it. Like, and I'm not going to find that. At least not ultimate fulfillment anywhere here. That's where it starts to trace your hope beyond this life and beyond this world. And I want to be really clear here. None of this means that you put your life on cruise control. None of this means that you need to stop chasing your dreams or stepping into your call whatsoever. The New Testament is filled with basically commands saying, you know, get to work, stay busy. But when you step into those things, you can actually go in with a very realistic understanding of what you can expect and what you shouldn't expect. And I think marriages, you know how many marriages will flourish once the spouses quit looking at each other to complete them? It's like, oh, you're a sinner just like me. And we have, we're very selfish in very different ways. But we can be together by grace, and that's a beautiful thing. But I'm not going to expect you to do for me what only Christ can do. When you know the limits, then you don't have to bury your desires. You just keep them rightly ordered, and then you trace or train your hope. What I mean by train your hope is, you know, it's coming. The promise is there. Next week, the whole sermon is about longing, or about waiting. This is about longing. That's about waiting. Advent's about waiting. How do we grow as a people who, who can wait with expectation and hope and faith? Well, the gift we have that the people in Isaiah's day didn't, while we know that ultimate fulfillment won't come until Christ returns, we do know that we can experience a very real measure of fulfillment today. Because unlike the Israelites, we've already received the down payment. Christ has come. And a lot of those deep desires, we can find fulfillment now. You want forgiveness? Jesus Christ has come and he's extended forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future. You want to live a life not feeling guilty 
miserable all the time, you have forgiveness. It's, it is available to you right now in Jesus Christ. Maybe you long that connection, that sense of belonging. Well, God's word tells us that all of us who are in Christ are now sons and daughters of God and we belong to his family. And I know that can be like it's, it's a beautiful, wonderful promise and at times it, it just feels a little intangible, but there are very tangible ways we experience it, oftentimes here on Sunday mornings. When we shake each other's hands, when we come along and encourage one another, we recognize that we're not just acquaintances, we're brothers and sisters. We already have a sense of belonging. Even more than that, God's word tells us that the fullness lies in the future, but we can begin stepping in to it now because we can draw near to him now, today. That in the Old Testament, there are all these obstacles to get to God. Jesus came and he tore every single one of them down. And we get to draw near. And not only do we get to draw near, God wants us. I dare say God desires us to draw near to him. The very last sentence in the, this prophecy all these great promises about what God's going to do. And then at the very end, Isaiah tells us that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. The, I think you could translate that the desire. That one of God's great desires was to reconcile humanity with himself. And what we celebrate at Christmas is that God drew near to us and our sin, so that we might be able to draw near to him even when we sin. And so if you're here and you're a believer, a very practical application, what would it look like for you to draw near this week? Set aside 10 minutes every morning. If that's way too much, pick a couple of mornings, evenings, whatever. But find 10, 20 minutes and actually sit with that question. What is it that I want? What do I want? Really think through it, and then take your answers to him. Knowing you can bring all of your, your whole self to him. The Psalms give us such tremendous permission to be, you know, brutally honest with God and to do so without fear. What do I want? God, here's what I want. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I imagine that a lot of this has resonated with you. Some of it, maybe not. You might still be, I don't know about the whole Christianity thing, but you, I've yet to meet a person who says, yes, my desires have been satisfied on earth. Like you were created for something greater than this world, for someone greater, and you will not find fulfillment until you, until you open your heart, open your life to him. As we move to the Lord's table, we celebrate the down payment that's been made on our hope. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood that's been shed for you. And he instructed his disciples and all who would follow after them to do this in remembrance of him. So when we come to the table, we're reminded because it's so hard to believe and it's so easy to forget. We're reminded that we're not defined by our sins. We're not defined by our misdirected desires. We have grace and mercy through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
which that gives us tremendous freedom to come to God as we are with honesty. So if you're a Christian, I encourage you to come to think through that question, what is it that I want? Are my longings aligned with God's promises? And then to ask God for help where you need help. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ, the desire of the nations. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.